Well, hello there, and welcome to Creative Life Lessons, a podcast that takes a look into what it takes to build a creatively fulfilling life and career. I'm your host, Lyle Schemmer, and today we'll be speaking with Wendell Haynes, the Emmy award-winning composer, record producer, and owner of Volition Sound. Over the course of his storied career as a creator of music for the advertising, television, and film industries, Wendell has scored over 1,500 commercials for brands, including Mountain Dew, McDonald's, Jaguar, Nike, Victoria's Secret, and Mercedes-Benz. Wendell is also known for having produced and arranged ESPN's flagship musical themes for SportsCenter, NFL Countdown, College Game Day, the NBA, and High Noon. He's also won every major advertising award, including Clio's, Can Lions, and One Show Pencils. Most recently, you may have heard his original scores in the Netflix documentary, The Remix, Hip Hop vs. Fashion, or in the NBC Peacock streaming documentary, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. Welcome to the podcast, Wendell. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Really glad you could make it. Uh, Where are you uh, calling in from? Maryland. I'm in Maryland, too. What part of Maryland? Oh, really? Okay. I'm in, actually, I'm in, uh, I'm in between Baltimore and D.C., uh, an area called Glenelg. Glenelg. Okay, sure. I know Glenelg. I'm actually uh, a little bit uh, north of Baltimore. Nice. Let's just begin the way that we usually start off uh, the podcast and uh, talk a little bit about your journey from high school trumpet player to accomplished producer, composer, and music house owner. How did this uh, story unfold? Yeah, well, I have to tell you, you know, it was not, there was no real plan to any of this. I didn't grow up thinking uh, this is what I would be doing when I grew up. Um, I did grow up playing the trumpet. My dad, my dad was a trumpet player. Everyone in my dad's family played an instrument. He was a one of nine children. Uh, my mom, what my mom's mother uh, was a piano teacher. Um, so I come from a very musical family and my older brother played the radio from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to sleep. And his room was right next to my room. So everything that he played, I listened to. And every time we got in the car, the music was on. And so I became one of these kids that I didn't know it at the time, but I listened very intently to music growing up. And so my dad um, asked me what instrument I would like to play when uh, I was in around second grade and they were offering instruments. And I said, okay, since he played the trumpet, I said, I'll play the trumpet. Now, mind you, if I had been thinking on a bigger scale, I would have said the piano. But, you know, when they came, that wasn't offered to me at the time. So I started working on the trumpet. And so I grew up playing the trumpet. And so I was a first chair trumpet. And I played in the jazz band. I played in the concert band. I played in the orchestra. And I did all that throughout uh, all my years uh, coming up into uh, middle school, high school, uh, I wasn't able to actually be in the band once I got into high school because I played so many sports, but I continued playing the trumpet on my own outside of things uh, because the band would play during the halftime and I would be actually playing on the field. So I couldn't do that. So the way I kind of transitioned into music because I always wanted to be a broadcaster. I wanted to be on television. I wanted to be a, a network anchor uh, reporter. And so... I got into a car accident inadvertently. And when I got into the car accident, that triggered this whole mindset in me that I couldn't be on TV anymore because I had plastic surgery on my entire face. Now, as a kid, 
and you get hit in a car accident, it's very traumatizing. And when you see scars on your face, mind you, scars from a car accident are a lot different from just like getting punched in the eye <laughs> during recess or something. So my entire face was just really disfigured. And so I had plastic surgery. Plastic surgery put things back together in certain ways, you know, but uh, I never really felt like I wanted to be on TV anymore at that particular point. So, you know, I didn't realize it was going to heal the way it did because it was really bad. So I stopped all my forward momentum uh, with broadcasting, being on TV. And so I decided I was not going to go into that field. And so, um, so my journey was very inadvertent. When I got into that car accident, my parents um, saw that I didn't want to go outside for an entire summer. I stayed in for months and months at a time. And uh, I gravitated to a keyboard that my uh, brother's partner owned because my brother is a platinum producer. He's he produced a lot of big records. And there was a keyboard that they were not using. And I found myself just on my own creating, sequencing songs, music inside of that keyboard. What kind of keyboard was it? That keyboard was probably, it wasn't a Casio, but it was, a, it was better than a Casio because they were producers. So it was, it was probably like a Korg or something at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but my parents, when, when that keyboard got taken away from me because they actually needed to use it, my parents replaced that keyboard with a Casio keyboard. And that Casio, I remember it cost like 400 bucks. I remember going to, uh, going to the record store with my dad and buying it. And hearing all the factory demos on it. And, you know, at that time, you know, the factory demos probably were really cheesy. But to me, I was like, wow, and I'm hearing bass lines and drums and, you know, and they're actually good demos at that particular time. So I was like, yeah, let's get this. And so I started making my own music on that on that keyboard. And I would put on little shows inside of my house and I turn the lights off, you know, and the keyboard had lights on the keyboard. So when you played the music, there would be lights on it. So if I played, every time I make a piece of music, I was very into having an audience, right? So here's, I make it on my own, then I, then I present it. And I would present it to my parents. And they would give me a grade, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> like, oh, that's an A, you know what I mean? All right. I think I got all A's when I played the stuff with my parents. And so <laughs> the thing that I thought that was really amazing about that experience was not only was I inviting feedback but I was making music with the intention of making great music. So I always heard music bigger than what I would create. So the keyboard had its own limitations, the Casio keyboard, right? The sounds are kind of bad, you know, here and there, you know, the piano doesn't sound like piano, strings don't sound like strings, but I didn't care about that. I always heard beyond what I had. So I knew that whatever I was making, I was making it with the intent of it being great. So I took that kind of confidence into college, you know, and I, I started working with some um, area rap groups. And the rap groups were very amazing for one reason. Their energy and excitement for rapping matched my excitement and energy for rapping. I also would record uh, Rhonda Ross um, who is Dinah Ross's daughter, and because I went to Brown and Brown University, and we would record all her demos. And her enthusiasm for recording matched my enthusiasm for being in the studio. So all of a sudden, 
I had a reason to be in the studio. And I knew other people that were just as enthusiastic for being in the studio. And so that was how I found my passion. And I think that was the key to my journey was figuring out what is your passion? Because at a very early age, I was like most kids, right? My, my idols or things that I really gravitated to were sports, right? And I'd be like, oh, I want to play basketball. So I was very intent playing basketball. I want to play soccer. I was very intent on playing soccer. And the biggest thing I think that helped me with my music once I got to college was the fact that I had always experienced winning as a child in sports. My soccer team was a national champ. My basketball team would win the state titles and stuff. We win all the, the, the championships all the time. And I would always win individual trophies um, when playing basketball. And so that kind of winning spirit pulled, my, pulled that mentality into music. And that's how I got to that next level in my journey of knowing that, you know what, I really like music. But then there was that, you know, that was a crossroad point. So it's, it's really about, um, you got to, you, you, you're playing to win, basically. You're playing to win. And, and that, that's the mentality. That's the key. Like, mm-hmm. I think you're playing to win and you can see that in kids at an early age. And I only knew winning. And it wasn't like I only knew winning from a selfish perspective of, oh, I don't, I can't lose or I don't, I'm going to do, I'm going to play dirty to, to win. It's that when I was younger, I always felt inherently, and that could become, that came from probably because from my parents. I always felt good about myself. And I always felt that when I saw something, I felt like I could do something. And so when I would see the results of doing something, see the results of my actions, I would, get, I would see the reward down the line. And having that kind of intent, passion, and then get, get the idea of, having a, uh, of getting that, that reward down the line, it let me know I was always on the right track. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And having your parents, you know, having great parents that say, you know what, this is what we like. Knowing what your parents like, you can always stay on the train track because they, you know what makes them smile, what makes them proud of you, right? And so I spent my entire upbringing really trying to make them trying to impress them and so I kind of look at them kind of as like my first clients because I always looked at them (laughs) as you know what my dad saw my report card for the first time in the sixth grade right six my first report card in the sixth grade and I had all A's and he came to the school and showed me my report card in the middle of school right middle of classes (laughs) right and I was so blown away by his smile and his whole attitude that from that point on I knew what I was what I was trying to do I knew what my agenda was I always wanted to relive that moment right so I did everything to do that and I think that's very important for people going forward because even later on when you're when you get clients or you have a boss right what you're always trying to do is make them happy with your output make them happy with your execution right um and that became something that I thought was a very strong um, motivator for me, right? Because as you're trying to impress others, you first have to impress yourself. And that's why I can show you right now, Blake, you know, I can play you some stuff. I'm like, I will never play this for anybody because it's terrible. You think I was the worst composer in the world. But that's the whole point is you have to create in a way that is unlimited 
and allows you to make those mistakes. But when you're ready to present, you present your best self. And that's what actually wins in the end. Yeah, I love I love what you just said. Um, in order to impress others, you have to impress yourself. You know, and I, I there was a Steve Hayden quote who was, you know, he was one of like the great copywriters. I think he wrote like the 1984 spot for Apple. And he said um, he said it was something like a successful copywriter pleases his clients. A happy copywriter pleases himself. <laughs> it was it was it was something like that. But I think that that those things are connected, that it, you have to people respond favorably to things that are good. And when you can sort of please your own sort of aesthetic standards, chances are people are going to see the value in that. Absolutely. As opposed to just trying to just trying to please a client, you know. And the commercial industry taught me that very early on, because what happens is you what I thought what what became my winning formula was I would always make like four tracks for a commercial. This is before I became I, I became uh, an owner of my own company. I was just Wendell working at an editing company. Right. Not even a music house. And I would make like four tracks, but I would do it because I thought of it as like a baseball field. Right. You got four bases. Right. First base, second base, third base, four, four uh, home in the home plate. Right. All you're really trying to do is get on base. Right. You might be shooting for the home run, but at the very least you want to get on base. So I would make make that whole diamond baseball diamond theory in my head. I would make four tracks. One is going to get me on first base, one will get me on second, one will get me on third, one will get me a home run. And what do you call getting on base, right? You're safe, right? What do you call getting to home base? No matter what base you get to, you're safe. And so I would make one piece that was safe that I thought the clients would like. I'd make one piece that was a mixture of safe and my own interpretation. And I would make another piece that I thought was, this is what I would do if I had no brief, and then I would make one piece that was like completely out of the box. Like, <laughs> I know you're going to hate this, but I'm making it anyway. I have four tracks. And that's why I was winning at an early point in my career, because I was preparing for the feedback. Well, this feels a little too safe. Well, this is too much of a mixture of safe and, <laughs> and risk. Well, this is what, oh, we like this out of the box one. And the out of the box one and the the no brief one would always be the one that would win because for some reason I would, in those versions, I would actually do what made me happy or what would make me impressed the most. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you, at the end of the day, what you don't want to do is give somebody something that you think that they're going to like. And then they say, I don't like that. And then you go, well, I don't like it either. Cause all they're going to say is, why did you give it to me then, right? So you have to kind of realize why do people come to you in the first place? They come to you because they feel as though you're going to bring them something that's going to raise the stakes or give them something that's going to, that's going to be something they didn't think of, right? Absolutely. People always want to be surprised and shocked, wowed, right? When you're a kid and you're seven years old, the whole point of being excited is you're going to be blown away. You're going to be wowed, right? Well, the only way you can wow somebody is if you give them something that they didn't think of. Because if you give them exactly what they told you to do, how are they going to be blown away by that? Completely. I don't know if you follow um, Rick Beato on YouTube. Um, he, he talks a lot about music theory and, and pr pr record production and so on. And he had Sting on as one of his guests. And he was talking to Sting about songwriting. And even Sting said, even within the context of one single song, 
Writing a great song is about constant little surprises. Oh, you know, yeah. adding a, a new piece of color, a, an unexpected chord, a, a rhythmic hiccup, some little thing, and to keep you listening. And it, you know, it, it it reminds me a lot of like writing a like a, a long copy ad, right? Like I have to take people through five thousand words. The goal of each sentence is to get them to the next sentence right. and the next sentence and the next sentence, right? So that sort of teaches you the same – it's sort of the same concept of just sprinkling in these little moments of delight to keep people engaged, you know, whether it's the song or whether it's your, your package of, of tracks, right? Absolutely. Because why? Because at the end of the day, the world has attention deficit disorder <laughs> or the world or, – or let's just say it's not attention because that's kind of negative, right? Let's just say the world has so many things it can be focusing on at that moment. Why should they focus on what you're talking about? And so at any point, someone can look away from the TV set or turn your song off. So you have to consider that. Let's move on to the next, uh, the next question. So, you know, I, you, you mentioned that you went to Brown and Brown University and you didn't study music composition or record production there. I'm just sort of curious, like, how did you learn? How did you learn the skills? To, to, to make to make to score things to you know make demos for commercials or make demos for you know hip-hop artists and so forth yeah yeah you're, yeah absolutely right I actually studied semiotic theory at Brown in journalism and so uh, semiotics like the study of signifieds and signs and all this stuff and you're watching movies you're studying the media and you're doing all these different things you're reading into a lot of things that was amazing but um, the way I was able to develop some of these other skills, I got to say, you know, something, I, you know, it's probably going to sound ridiculous, right? But I'm going to say it anyway. Some things you can't really teach. I, I was not taught how to create music for commercials. I was not taught how to make music, period. I cannot point to one single person that sat down with me at any point and said, this is how you do it. This is what you do. Here's the formula. Nobody. I will, I will shout out people forever for being supportive. But remember, I was going into a, I was actually going into a field that was foreign to me, right? And I started my career at an, at an editing company. So it was foreign to the people at the company that I work for. They were not music people, right? So how did I, how did I develop the musical musicality? You know, I, I did something that everybody does every day. And that is, I listened to music. But I listened intently. Every night when I was growing up, for 12, 15 years, I was listening to uh, the, gen you know, um, what's it called? Whatever, the music. I was listening to my radio at night, every night. And I would listen very intently. So I would, be, I would make note of the verses. I would make note of the choruses. I would make note of the bridges. And I didn't realize what I was doing, but I really enjoyed listening. And I would tape that music and I would listen to it over and over. And I would listen to the slightest sound that most people might not pay attention to. And I could tell you what the last two or three notes of any of those songs were, because I could, I would, at that time on the radio, they would play the music all the way to the end. You know, they don't do that anymore. They might play like two minutes of a piece of music. Now, at that time, they were playing like seven-minute songs, and they play it all the way to the full fade-out, right? Engineers know about that, pulling down that lever and making that yeah, perfect, yeah. perfect fade-out, right? But I mean, like, in terms of, like, for example, um, 
like you know side chain compression right or how, how do you how do you mic how do you learn how to mic a piano or like a bass amp right like which microphone to use which compressor to use like i mean all of that like you know i never i never i never got into that i i could care less of any of that i think it might have been to my uh, a positive for me i could care less about actually doing that stuff i think i may have figured that stuff out later on but you know, really with music, for me, it was a matter of imitation. It was a matter of what made me feel like I was making something great. You know, I was a big fan of Jimmy Jam and Tara Lewis. And Jimmy Jam and Tara Lewis were very famous for making chord progressions that were very empowering, right? And I would hear these chord progressions. I would love them. And you know what I translated that into later? Anthem music. Music. And what are commercials synonymous for creating anthems right sure sure you know and so i would all of a sudden i'd have this i i get put in front of me it's, hey can you make an anthem for kodak right <laughs> kodak's not even around anymore right but i would i would pull out that jimmy jam and terry lewis inside of me right and i and next thing you know i would win it and the thing what what i realized at that particular moment was it's not about technical stuff it's a, for me, it might be for every, other people. For me, it's about emotion. It's like, goes back to the kid. How do you make that kid enjoy what you're doing? How do you make the kid smile? How do you make that kid laugh, right? Through music, right? You play these chords, you do these chords, the progressions, right? I always tell my daughter, who is a piano player, right? I say, you know what? With music, you're always a half step away from a smile. I tell her that. <laughs> you, know, you know why? Because you change one half step and you're in a major key. You change one half step, you're in a minor key, right? The whole point is emotion. When you play music, how does it make you feel? How does it make others feel? If you're playing, if you're making music for other people or for money or for, as a career, you have to bring your, you have to allow yourself to make music that's going to make them want to purchase it make them want to accept it, right? You care what they think. You have to in order to win a job or to keep your career. Cool. This next question kind of concerns like your evolution as a, as a producer and as a composer. And I, I guess my question is, has it, has it changed over time? Well, thankfully, I would have to say that, you know, it changed over time because my clients changed over time, right? Um, the evolution of music. If I were to make a piece of music from the 90s, in 2022, it might be dated at this particular point, right? And a client would be smart enough to recognize that instead, unless they actually, you know, were looking for that sound. You know what I mean? I think that's one of the things as composers, producers, we have to realize when you, when you have to change and adapt. I think there are some people that get stuck in particular decades. They're great for a certain decade and they can't get out of that decade. And they either can't get out of that decade because they don't want to get out of that decade. It's like the kid that doesn't want to jump out the pool, right? No, I want to stay in the pool. <laughs> no, you know, you know, they don't want to get out the pool, right? But some people don't want to leave the decade because for egotistical reasons, maybe they might think this is, this is superior to that new sound or I'm going to keep it real and I'm going to keep it real and do this and this is what I'm going to do over here, right? Or they're thinking, well, this is all I can do. Well, this is, this is the extent. I don't, I'm not feeling that style. I'm not good at that style. And people do what they're great at, right? Do what they're good and great at. 
and they're okay doing that. In my business of um, advertising, some people are really great at one thing and their clients come to them for one thing, right? And some people might be great at multiple things and so clients might come to them for multiple things. Either way, you're able to establish a career in advertising to a degree if those people, if the demand is still there for that sound, right? But if the demand is not there for that sound, it is a, you have an ultimatum, a musical ultimatum to change and adapt and change your sound in a way that actually incorporates new sounds down the line. Because if you don't, they're not going to call you. And I'm going to tell you exactly why they won't call you. You know why they don't call you when you don't change your sound? <clears throat> because clients have a different agenda every day, every week, right? Especially music, people who are the music side of, um, of, of an industry, right? Their job is to make a hit. Even if you're not in the record industry, the client, even the commercial industry, when people make a great commercial, that's considered a hit, right? So commercial people are trying to make hits too. How do they make the hit? Well, they've got to continue and keep up with trends. If you're not willing to stay up with the trends, then you're not willing to stay up with your clients, right? And if your clients notice that you're not staying up with the trends, they're not going to call you. And it's not that they don't like you anymore. It's that they have a job to do. Yeah, yeah. And the job today is to make a trap song that does this. Or the job today is to make a pop song that sounds like Ariana Grande, right? And the mm -hmm. job today is to make, you know, whatever it is, right? What have been some of the setbacks you faced in your career and how did you manage to overcome them? I've, I've had some setbacks in my career and uh, I start by saying, I was fired or let go three times when I got a job. I was, I was let go in my first capacity um, when I was the composer, a sound person uh, at an editing company. And I was let go out of the blue, no notice, just let go. I had been there like five or six years. And then I was, also, I was fired twice from the same company and both uh, after a different company than, than the editing company. But at the new company, I was fired twice, and both times I came back to the same company. And that was just interesting. And what I realized was uh, in the first particular scenario was I got fired, so right away I realized that, you know, you never can get too comfortable. Even if you're doing good work, you always have to have yourself covered, Right. And then at the second company, when I got fired the first time, what I realized was getting fired does two things. What it does is the first thing it does, it automatically makes you think and think yourself into action, right? Because you, what are you going to do? Okay, I got to do this. What are my options, right? The second thing it does is it automatically tells you what your value is. Hey, these people... I, I can go here. I can go here. I could do this. I could do that. Or I can't do this. No one wants me here. Oh, da -da, these people are the only people that wanted me in the first place. Da -da -da. You know what I mean? Which one is it? But at some point when you get fired, you realize your value right away. So I was really grateful right away that I realized my value right away at that point. The second time I got fired, I realized that you can't be so honest uh, 
And you have to be careful with your with your words and the things that you do, even if you're do even if you're doing those things in the right spirit, even if you're trying to help. Sometimes you can try be trying to help somebody, right? And when you're trying to help them, somehow that gets twisted around, and next thing you know, you get fired. <laughs> That's what happened in the second time. But what I realized in both circumstances was that my value was so high at the company that with some discussion and communication, I, uh, everybody was willing to, to nip it in the bud and start again. But what I did realize was after that second time I got fired, I realized that I put myself on a time clock at that point, right? I started the stop the stopwatch because what I realized was I'm not going to get fired a third time. And this time I'm going to leave on my own terms. And that's when I realized that, you know what, I got fired, but now I have the proper footing to start my own company. And that's what I did. And I left on my own terms at that point because it was time. And I think at the end of the day, it's very important for people to realize that <clears throat> It's not the company that hires you that gives you your worth. You're the one that gives you your worth and you're the one that knows your trajectory. And you're the one that is, your, is the battery. You're the battery to your whole life. Like you're the one that starts everything. You're the one that gets out of the bed, eats the breakfast, you know what I mean? That drives the work and gets to the job, right? It's not the job that's giving you life. You're giving the job life, right? That's why mm -hmm. people hire you because they see something in you that's going to give their company life, right? So you're the life. And I think people, if they realize more and more that they're the ones that are that particular springboard to greatness, then they can start their own company too. All right, it's time to play false equivalents. Ready? Go ahead. Lisa Loeb or Duncan Sheik? <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not fair, yeah. Uh, you know what? I knew Duncan a lot better than Lisa. So, you know, I, I went to school with both of them at Brown University. I, I, Duncan Sheep. Okay. All right. Flute or oboe? Oboe. Oboe. Do I need to tell you why? Yeah, I'd love to hear why. Oh, oboe. You know why? Because of Peter and the Wolf. My parents used to play Peter and the Wolf on me at night. And I used to always listen to that. I love that story. And that the oboe was like a main character in the film. I think it was the wolf. Isn't it also like, it's just a funny sound. It's just a funny instrument. It's a different instrument that you don't hear a lot and it's underrated. And it really is, is an instrument that doesn't get a lot of shine. And it's just a, an amazing instrument. I, w I would like to buy an oboe just to play it. <laughs> okay, LeBron James or Magic Johnson? LeBron James. I'm a LeBron fanatic. LeBron is the GOAT. Don't let anybody tell you Michael Jordan. LeBron has it all. He's got the full package. I don't want to hear it. All people want to do is say, oh, no, Jordan. No, LeBron James, all day. Okay, Roland 808 or Lindrum? I got to go with Roland 808. You know, the, the Linden joint was way, that Lindrum was way too, that was before me. I'm not that old. You know, the Roland 808. <laughs> Roll 808, boom. That's where you got it. They hit a 909 too, right? That came out? Yep. Yeah, all right. Uh, Quincy Jones or Dr. Dre? Oh, man. Quincy Jones, come on. Dr. Dre. I can do Dr. Dre right now. Come on. I can redo every Dr. Dre beat right now. No, Quincy Jones, all right? Quincy Jones did Roots, The Wiz, Michael Jackson, Philly. I mean, 
you're talking about timeless and things you can really take a whole lot away from. Like, just amazing. What? Nice. Okay. Heineken or Stella Artois? Heineken all day. Come on, Heineken. I did a. I, I know, I know. Yeah. You're, you're first can lion. First can lion. That's all right. right. Um, six eight or four four. Six eight. I wish somebody would allow me to do something in six eight. I mean, really, good great. Let's go six eight all day. All right. Uh, thriller or Purple Rain? Thriller. 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 Come on, lady of my. Come on. Do I need to go down the list? I'm not okay. even gonna go down the All right, list. okay. All right, I'm a huge Prince fan though. Um, I get it, I get it. Uh, Let me tell you, Prince, Michael Jackson did not need a movie to make his album <laughs> doper. My, Prince was amazing, P Purple Rain is amazing, but Purple Rain also, the, the reason why I saw the album was so huge was just as much because of the movie, in my opinion. Okay. It's a great- okay. I'm gonna re I'm gonna ask you a, a sub question to that one. Thriller or Sign of the Times? Sign of Times is awesome too. I mean, Sign of Times. Okay, that's a you know what I love that question. And the only reason why I'm gonna give it to Sign of the Times is because I already chose Thriller for the first one. So it's almost like it's almost like a boxer that boxes one match and now he's got to box the second match. Yeah, it's a tournament. It's a tournament. Yeah. After yeah. ten minutes, in, in ten minutes. Okay, Sign of the Times. That's an album I don't think anybody else in this world could create. I just don't see it. It was just like, oh, it was, that's an amazing album. I, you know what I love about Prince is you don't, you never know what you're gonna get from one song to the next. He can be one way and another way and somehow it all ends up on one album. It all album. hangs together. It all hangs together. It him. all hangs together, but yeah. it's so far apart. Yep. And it's amazing. Yeah, you get everything from Alphabet. No, not Alphabet City. That was on. That not was on Alphabet Love Sexy. Suit. That was Love Sexy. No, but you had like um, the song "Sign of the Times." Starfish and starfish. Starfish and, and coffee. Starfish, yeah, starfish right. and coffee. You know what I mean? Yeah, if I was your girlfriend. Yeah, you got yeah. Everything. I mean, pop life, pop life. You got the whole thing. Sign of the Times. No, pop pop <laughs> life was on Around the World in a Day. Actually. No, pop life was on Sign. It wasn't on Sign of the Times. Around the World in a Day. See, that's another thing about Prince. Prince is so amazing. His songs, you know, you want them, you wish, you group them together because you just like, you know what, this song is amazing, this song is amazing, so let's put it all together. Yep. You make your own playlist with his albums. All right, I'll move on, we'll move on. Here's one. Um, e flat major seven or ASOS four? E flat major seven. Yep. You and Spencer Ludwig. I love E flat. I always love E flat. Spencer Ludwig chose that too. Yeah, E flat major seven. All right, um, lasagna or chicken parm? You know, if I'm being dirty, I'm going with lasagna because the lasagna has more potential. You can stack all sorts of stuff in that lasagna, right? Uh -huh. Chicken parm is just chicken parm, right? So yeah, yeah. I would prefer the lasagna. Okay, lasagna it is. Uh, and lastly, um, Stevie Wonder or Herbie Hancock? Stevie Wonder all day, not even close, not even in the same stratosphere because I love songs more than music alone and that dude stevie wonder made songs incredible mm -hmm. i love herbie hancock too but stevie wonder yeah I'm, I'm with you on that one uh so we'll just take it to one final question now um i'm gonna ask you uh if you weren't making music what would you be doing 
Um, probably what I do on the side now, which is I write, I write children's books. I would be doing more of that. I, and I would be, um, <clears throat> are you saying if I wasn't composing for music? Because if I wasn't composing music, what I would do, you know what my actual dream is? Is to just every day learn to be a better pianist. Because one of my goals was always to be, you know, once I realized I love piano, which I know I cannot reach at this point, but <laughs> I would have loved to have been a concert pianist. Cool. Well, anyway, um, Wendell, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to, uh, to talk with me and to talk so specifically in, in with such detail around the, the art and craft of uh, being a composer. I, I've really, really enjoyed this, this conversation and just the, your vibe and the fun. Cool. Very good. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. To learn more about the CLL podcast and its guests, please visit creativelifelessons.co. Creative Life Lessons was created by Penn Lee and Lyle Schemmer and is executive produced by Paul Greco and Jack Bradley. Audio engineering and voiceover provided by Jesse Marks. No part of this podcast may be reproduced in whole or in part in any manner without the permission of CLL Productions.